Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm looking for a way to live more simply, to look at connection between myself and my landscape, because there's probably somewhere inside there's a void that I still haven't filled just yet or haven't got to just yet. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Ian Finch. Ian is an expedition guide and adventure and outdoor photographer who cut his teeth in the adventure world as a Royal Marine Commando. Ian's desire to record, capture or lead expeditions in unfamiliar corners of the globe is clearly driven by his passion to learn about heritage and traditions from the native cultures that call those places home. In this episode we talk about Ian's life and his journey into the world of expeditions, as well as talking through the stories of his last major expeditions. Okay? Over to Ian Finch. So, we'll start in the logical place. I think it would be useful for you to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, whatever that means to you. What's your lifestyle like? Um, my name is Ian Finch. I'm a, a photographer, predominantly. Um, a man who just has a passion for storytelling for the outdoors, for culture, for anything that, a story that moves people to action. And where did that come from and how have you got to where you are? Um, it's, it's difficult to put a finger on anything, like a like a starting point. It was something that was like a, a seed like that just grew over many years of just being, I spent a lot of time in the outdoors. I think my love of native cultures and um, indigenous cultures and the stories and the outlook of, of indigenous groups came from my dad. So I grew up in a, my, my dad's very much into history, into archaeology, into geometry and all this kind of stuff. So in my mum and dad's house, he had a beautiful cabinet that I grew up in. And it, in this uh, cabinet, there was like books and um, Tibetan prayer wheels, Native American arrowheads. There was beads from native groups that he hadn't actually been there to collect them, but he had seen them maybe at antiques shows or he'd been, you know, collected them from certain places. And he had a book that was by one of my favourite photographers called Edward Curtis. And he he was, the I believe, the last photographer to um, photograph the tribes in their actual state before sort of, you know, the Western expansion, the European expansion across the US. And he used plate photography and as he created, I think, like 25 volumes and he took him 15, 20 years to create all these incredible sepia photographs of all these Native American tribes and their regalia and everything. So I always, I grew up around this love and sort of exposure to Native groups. Um, and as I sort of progressed into the adventure world and photography and storytelling, I had this kind of goose pimple 
um, attachment, subconscious attachment, I think, to that love that my dad had. And I had this sort of, I would say, just this unconscious drive or desire to meet people, talk to people about their spiritual outlook in life and their connection to nature and their connection to the outdoors, um, what it was to be a native person in today's world with the struggle for modernism and the, the some, in some aspects the, the struggle for identity. And my whole sort of trajectory has that thread running through it. And now sort of a lot of, sort of the expeditions that I do, I go away and speak to these people and maybe even bring stuff back and I then add stuff to this cabinet now. So it's a real special sort of process. But even after many years of, you know, talking to my dad and, you know, the, the kind of the male... The man to dad thing is no, never the closest relationship. Um, there was always always this slight distance between myself and my father. I see this now as maybe the things that I'm bringing back are like a peace offering to bring us back together, or, or not so much bring us back together, but to bring us closer. So I only I only worked that out when I started chatting to sort of like a, you know a pro professional a few years ago, you know, talking to you know getting stuff out of the system and all that kind of stuff, and that was maybe one of the journey you know one of the things that I found and most profound from those conversations so a lot to do now it's kind of it's very important for me now to do these trips and for my own sort of journey my own internal journey but at the same time it's all uh, I feel there's this maybe this small unconscious drive to bring ourselves closer via that that sort of subject matter maybe but still for me there's you know it's I've sort of digressed off that that question but yeah, it's it's all about the story and all about bringing back something of value, a story of value, of impact to educate. And it usually revolves around super wild places and, and native people and the connection, that kind of invisible connection between the both of them. Yeah, and I think you've obviously just explained extremely well and like opened up huge um, kind of paths for us to walk down in a minute and also obviously what you do now and what inspires and motivates you but there's the obvious chunk that's the military life mm. you know what was the motivation <clears throat> to join the marines and how old were you what was your life like then and how long did you stay for and things like that um so i'd always been a person that just you love to use my body like in physical body in, in any form of like cross-country running or um athletics and all that kind of stuff so i knew how to push myself even at a young age i didn't know what it was that was driving me towards that it was just a desire to push myself sort of physically and mentally i didn't when you're at school i mean you don't have any concept of what that really is or what that means or what you're getting from it you're just being the person that you are so i'd, I'd always wanted to be a sports teacher so I came out of school, I did some of my qualifications to go to university to become a sports teacher because I think at heart, us storytellers, including you, you're, you're a teacher at heart. There's a there's that little nucleus of wanting to give something to other people to educate and help. So um, I got all my qualifications to become a sports teacher and then there was always this ember of the military and wanting to do something in the military. And I, I dabbled with maybe the army, but then... I again with conversations with my dad and my dad's friend was a Marine um, and a few bit over a few beers and a few whiskeys they were like you know it might be worth you know having to think about the Marines so over a few years I thought about the Marines and I worked out exactly how I was going to train how many press-ups I needed to do a day how far I needed to run over like a three five month period 
And yet I chose to do the Marines and it was a pure desire of just wanting to excel. If I was going to go into that field, I just wanted to excel at it. And also, I think there was a, a desire to see where my limits were because I'd, I'd been proficient enough at school to be a good cross-country runner or a good runner. And I think when you get you mature, you, you've, you're trying to search in for limits and you're searching for where where you could go and how far you could go. Um, and I think when, with the Marines, it was like, right, I need to, not I need to, but I wanted to try and see where those limits were and, and excel and try and be the, be the best at what I was going to invest all that time in. Cause I knew it was like a five to seven year thing that was, it was going to be, I knew it was never going to be a career, a long-term career. It was more of a, let's see what I can do here and see what I can, not so much get out of it, but see where I can go, what, what I can achieve, how far I can go with this. Um, yeah, and I just set that, I set that, that in process, like a one year mental thing of just making that happen, setting the time out when I was going to join, how fit I was going to be. Um, but when you're in, you know, it's a slightly different, slightly different, um, dynamic because you're brought out of the, the kind of ego about you, just you. Now it's about the team. Now it's about sort of thinking about other people, different differences in abilities, how your strengths can lift up other people and how other people's strengths can lift up you and that's now that when I look back on that sort of period of life that the, the kind of physical skill sets and the things that you learn in there are not so much relevant anymore it's the more the mental side now that is this kind of imprinted in that period where it's like your formative years effectively 21 22 and you're you're as a young man you're learning the the rules of life and things like that so yeah, everything I move forward with now and the trips that we both do, you know, I'm always pulling on those things that I learned in the Marines. And what did you get up to while you were there? So I did, um, I, I joined at a time when the Iraq war in 2003 was um, just starting. So when I joined, it was going to be happening. So that the sort of the, the Iraq war was in 2003. So March, I think it started 2003 and I joined in January 2003. So the training team were you know you're going to be they they didn't know how long this was going to be how long this was going to last so they were like you know you're training for the real thing now this is not sort of a potential conflict this is the real thing so when I finished training in September 2003 that kind of that first wave had already finished so the unit I joined all those guys came back to the unit and I joined a company of guys that had obviously been at war so that was really hard to when you're sort of out of training and you have this like, I want to get stuck in, I want to get involved in as much as I can. You had to take a step back and be like, right, I'm not, I'm not at the top of the the pecking order anymore. Now I'm back to the bottom. Now I've got to prove myself. I've got to keep my head down, stay quiet, and and um, and just bide your time, just t- just take your time and prove yourself with everything. So. I joined 2003, so Iraq happened, and then I left sort of late 2007 towards 2008. So Afghanistan was just starting to get bad then. Um, and at that point, I had sort of gone to a different part of the Marines, so I was effectively undeployable at that point. So in between that, I did Norway, let mountain Arctic warfare training and trained with the US Marines and did all sorts of different manner of things. So, yeah, got, got some did some very, very cool stuff where you learn a lot learn a lot about yourself and about the environment, what you're capable of and how to operate in different environments. So yeah, it was fun times. Yeah. <laughs> and what did you do when you left? 
So in your when you leave the the Marines, you you uh, have a or the forces as a whole, I believe, you have a resettlement package. So you can learn re relearn in any um, field of your choice. So you you go away, you do the course, and then you have a I think you have a a few years where you're allowed they they will pay for that retraining. So you have to kind of go and do the course, and then you kind of almost claim the money back. So I did like sports science, sports psychology, nutrition. I did physical training. I did a life coach course because I thought I did the, the, I knew it. I went back, I fell back on the sports teacher side of things again where I thought, but now I've got this um, footing and this foundation of the mental strength side of things in the Marines and the, you know, the, the desire to sort of bring people together and achieve things together. Um, yeah, I thought maybe I'll just fall back on that again because that's what I love and what I know how to move my body and the desire to help people. So I finished that, studied all that, and then I went into fitness training and training people for events and maybe endurance events. And I even worked and sort of uh, did uh, boot camp classes and, you know, trained people for Ironmans and did all manner of things. So, yeah, that was that was feeding that side of things. But there was always this... Um, again, this itch to go to another level, like push something in another area. Um, so, yeah, you, you start thinking about what you can do next. You know, it's like expeditions. I mean, you know that. You're constantly thinking about where could we go, what could we do, how could I push this aspect of it. So there was always something there burning inside of me to, to go somewhere else and do something different. And funnily enough, when I left the Marines, when I chose to leave, I was I had this intuitive feeling of I'm going to be working for myself I'm going to be doing something different when I leave and yeah I I don't know how I can't explain it it was almost it it was an intuition like a a knowing that I was going to be doing something slightly different with my life after that and so how did it progress into the field that you work in now um so I'd always been an outdoors person so I'd always in terms of go to North Wales and go to Scotland and Lake District, climbing, hiking, wild camping. I'd done that my whole life. And I was when I came out of the Marines, it was more of a, right, I need a new challenge. I need to push myself in another way. So, and writing had always been my first medium. Photography was never my first medium. So at school, I loved Shakespeare. I loved poetry. I loved anything where I could, could creatively write and use my imagination to write, write a story or do anything. But poetry, I used to write a lot of poetry. I mean, it's a marine and poetry. They do not go together. But I loved it. I actually loved it. And, you know, I stuck the odd letter through doors of women that I liked and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I decided to walk the length of the Outer Hebrides. I was like, I need a new challenge. I'm just going to – I bought a book called The Timeless Way and it was a guy called Peter Clark who'd written this book in the 80s or maybe. And it was a route through the Outer Hebrides and it was going over certain mountains and – through certain beautiful sort of landscapes in the Hebrides and north to south, complete sort of um, journey of walking. And I read the book and then I just plotted the route and I thought, well, just, I'm just going to do this. I really fancy doing this in the summer. So I just, I, I, I walked the route itself. And then as I was going, I was writing a journal and I loved the aspect of moving through a landscape and recording the people that I had met, the sort of the, the, the aspect of the landscape itself and how things felt and the real visceral sort of aspects of storytelling about, you know, trying to put people in my shoes, feel what I felt and and, and that side of things. So th- along that route, I, I don't think even I took, excuse me, I don't think I took my DSLR, I think I took, just took my iPhone and I was taking pictures along the way 
And I was already been attracted to photography, but I had no idea in terms of, I had an eye for it. I, I believe I had an eye for it, but I didn't know what I was doing. You just took pictures because you was attracted to a scene and et cetera, et cetera. So on that trip, a lady from, might be in the Great Outdoors magazine or Trail Mag or something like that. She got wind of it, a lady called Mary, and then she contacted me. She goes, oh, we've seen this and seen that. So at that point, really, Instagram, then social media wasn't a thing at that point, really, in terms of storytelling and as, as we know it now. And she goes, do you want to do like a three or four page story in Trail Mag or whatever it was? I think it was Great Outdoors Mag. Um, and have you got any photos? I was like, yeah, I've got these photos on my phone and I've done a tiny little edit on them. I've done nothing of any, insignific any significance. But yeah, and it went in the magazine. And then after that, I was like, I love that idea of doing something, writing about it, photographing it. You know, I loved that framework. Um, even though at that point I was still toying with the thing of, oh, is, is the writing and the photography pulling me out of the experience? Is it sort of sort of interrupting the experience? But I found that you can know, you can consciously still experience something, but then journal at the end of every day, which then became a format on my expeditions was when you get in your tent or your bivvy at the end of night, it's always like, even though you're knackered, always journaling, like feelings, thoughts, people, emotions at the end of every day. And on even on some of my recent expeditions, it's like one of those things you're like, oh, I don't have to do this. But if you're writing the book or writing the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, those intricate moments, those details, you they that you forget those. So journaling is like one of those things where you you stay in contact with those tiny emotions and feelings of when you're just pissed off, wet, tired, cold, hungry. I mean, you know, that get lost in the system one month, three months, six months down the line. So, yeah, and then after that, I just started to do, started to focus a little bit more on the photography side of things. So I'd go on trips and I'd be just thinking, oh, man, I want to sort of photograph this. I'd love to camp here and photograph that or I'd love to meet that person in, you know, near the Talisca distiller in Sky who's brought his oyster business up from five oysters, you know, from nothing. So I just became interested in other people and then telling their story. And it was this real organic journey of wanting to meet people and find out who they were and what drove them. But there was always, always, always looking back, a connection between the person and the landscape always the connection and because ultimately I think looking back and still now even to this day with my trips and sort of the narratives for the trips I'm probably looking myself for understanding like I'm still on that journey now I've still not complete in that journey now so I'm looking for a way to live more simply to look at connection between myself and my landscape because there's probably somewhere inside there's a void that I still haven't filled just yet or I haven't got to just yet so me, especially when I go in search of stories with regards to native groups, I'm looking for probably a spiritual or an emotional connection to something that's connected to the land. And um, yeah, some, I, I often think about that. So all the stories I've ever, and all the people I've ever met, I'm always looking for something to do with connection. Connection to? I think... Um, not in terms of like a lot from a religious perspective, it's more what drives people um, to do what they do, the passion behind what they do, but also the, I think it's something to do with the landscape, the connection to the land and why connection is important and why the land is important, to, not just as a whole to from a conservation environment, environmental perspective, but our human connection to the landscape. 
Why is it important? And then retaining that importance as regards to heritage, knowledge, traditions. Um, I feel I, I don't know why I am drawn to that. It's just something that I feel really passionate about. And I, I feel if I'm drawn to it, there must be a void in, my, in myself towards that because you don't go after something that's full. You go after something that needs filling effectively. Avoid. I mean, I completely agree. It, so this is obviously a loaded question, but it's quite obvious that you're connected to landscape around mm. the world, et cetera, et cetera. But do you feel like you've got a home? A home? Um, I, I love, yes, I, do, I love England. I love I love England as a home and I love my family. Um, but it's quite an interesting question because when I was actually funny, just going back to the Hebrides, I met a lady um, who was rebuilding a croft in Hebrides and she was pulling these like ropes. I was walking across this beautiful meadow with all these wildflowers in and she was rebuilding this croft and she was putting heather, which is obviously the traditional way of um, insulating a croft. She was put, pulling this rope and putting this heather on top of this house. Anyway, she came down and we had a chat in this field and she was showing me all these different types of wildflowers and what you could eat and what you couldn't. And she said, where do you belong to then? I said, this, this was on Harris, I think. And she was like, where do you belong to? And then I kind of looked at her and I was like, where do I, where do I belong to? I said, like, oh, I'm from London. And she was like, oh, okay. But it was the reframing of the question that is a completely, where do you come from and where do you belong to? to if you think about that, that's two completely different questions. Completely different questions. Different. Yeah, and that was a mad, that was like a mini like kind of shift in the power of questions and how you can, you know, when you have interviews with people or when you're talking to people, how a reframing of a question can elicit a completely different thought pattern, result and answer. Mm-hmm. So after that, I, I didn't even have a, I, I didn't have an answer for that. I couldn't, where do you belong to? Like, what, I mean, you can ask, a million people that and many people where do you belong to I, I i couldn't answer but i still think about that today and funny enough um we were wrecking a project a month before covid hit in 2020 and we were interviewing a guy who was from harris but he lived in glasgow and he asked me the same thing he was like where do you belong to then so maybe it was another way of just asking where do you come from but i had reframed it in a much more spiritual sort of deep way which is like classically me and I was then looking for the answer. No, but it's interesting because it is, it's etymology, isn't it? It's like, you know, if you're looking at Scotland, I mean, people say, where do you stay? Or is that Ireland or both? Where do you stay? Which is, you know, where do you live? I mean, they're different things. Yeah. And I, I've noticed before, where do you stay? Well, that could be this week, but they mean, where do you live? Yeah. But it is that etymological difference between where are you from and where do you belong to? I mean, my answer is different for both and I'm yeah. sure yours is. What would, you, what would your answer be then? Well, where am I from is Grimsby, <laughs> you know, but I don't belong there and haven't since I was a kid. Yeah. I don't know where I belong to. That's the point. I think yeah. I'm working that out. And that why I asked is because I'm guessing you are. Yeah. I think like if I think about that question, it's kind of where do you where do you belong to? It's it's like, I think it goes further than the person. I think it's like a I don't know, not maybe an ancestral thing, but but we're having this conversation. It's the first time I've ever done a podcast at home. We're sat in Suffolk, which is not where I'm from, but my family are all from here. Mm. And I've got family buried in the ground here back to the 14th century. That's as far back as we can go. My mum's here. You know, my mad old aunt is here. Um, 
so maybe I do belong here. I don't have the right accent. I don't know all the pathways yet, but I'm working on that. Mm. Because I, you know, like you, I mean, I think there's quite a lot we could talk about and we could probably do this for a few hours, but belonging, I mean, Sebastian Young has written whole books on that. Yeah, you know, around, tribe. I've exactly, yeah. on homecoming and belonging. Like, yeah. I, that's what I've been lacking, having mm. a kid's hooked. But yeah, it's, I mean, that's sort of shocked me how brilliant a question that is. Yeah. Where do you belong to? It just reframes everything. And I mean, if from a, from your perspective as a filmmaker, if you were to ask people that, I mean, that st- when that asked me, it stopped me in my tracks. And it, it's, it's such a, I wouldn't say a deep question, but it's such a large question. It's such a, and it elicits, you know, it's an important question that deserves an important answer. But yeah. that, I don't think you can give that in a moment or one minute or two minutes. I mean, that's a, you've got to go away and think about that where you belong to because it's, it's like a sensory question where you've got to think Christ, where do i belong to you know like and is it is it important to you that question it is to me because i'm a i think deeply like that other people it might it might just be on the periphery that kind of question that might not elicit such a you know they might hold not a lot of importance to that question but for me it does yeah no and i'm fascinated as to why um and it's probably projection maybe personally. because you that that question resonates with us because we are in search of belonging yeah. in some or a place of belonging. And that could be physical, it could be community, it could be yeah. passion. Yeah. Looking for our place and what, you know, what what we have to give and Yeah. I mean it's interesting you said, you know, England. And I, I'm totally with you on that. I'm a I'm an Anglophile who but not in a not in a in a Nigel Farage sense. I think that's my, <laughs> and that's the problem is when I felt so proudly English for so long, not because of you know, poppies in the grass and stuff like that, just because it's where I'm from. And I lo- I love folk music. I love poetry as well, and yeah. particularly English old folk style. Um, but because of how much things have changed over the last decade, I feel like I'm losing my sense of place because I don't feel like I'm of this place anymore. If that makes sense. Mm. That's hard. Yeah, and do you think the amount that you have travelled and worked in places like that? Do you reckon that's? It's. I think if, would would you say if you were um, in a place for a long amount of time and you'd settled in a certain place and you were connected to your local area in a certain way, do you think travelling has impacted your sense of belonging? Yeah, it's radically changed it. Yeah, I mean, I actually this has become a bit of a theme for this podcast, but. Yeah, I mean, I've just come back from Jordan, Wadi Rum, and there are lots of issues with the way people live there, particularly if you look around, you know, women's rights, things like that, obviously. But the simplicity, which is a cliche kind of colonial thing to say, but the the lack of clutter, but also the lack of, uh, the, sorry, the, the presence of purpose and the presence of focus and the presence of community in a place where I feel so... Well, like there's just no community, like radical disconnection from landscape, particularly, mm-hmm. but from each other too. Mm. I mean, you know, this county we're in now, it's kind of a little bit of a backwater. And I think there is still community, but it's the older community. Mm-hmm. People are still connected to the landscape, but they're all the older people. Um, you know, you go around the desert with the Bedouin, they can tell you the name of every plant, every hill, every, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Around here, you go for a walk in these woods we can see out the window with anyone from within 10 miles and most of them can't tell you the names of the trees. Yeah. 
Mm. I, a, I guess yeah. with those guys and, and, and those folks and those communities, there's an, still a necessity to know those plants and the landscape and and what the weather means and what the weather's called and stuff like that. Over here, we have, we don't have the need or the necessity to, because it's not life or death anymore for us here now, because life is you know radically changed. So we don't have the need to learn plants, trees, that kind of thing. But that you know after covid and all the lockdowns and stuff like that the resurgence in our connection to the outdoors and how important the outdoors is is just you know i think it's one thing that we've got to bring the children of today in schools as like as, as a, a deep part of education is helping children um, connect to the outdoors and and they're the custodians of the future and, and and when they care when they learn about the landscape and the trees and the plants when they care um sorry when they learn about it they'll care and when they care They'll protect it. Yeah. So inevitably. Yeah. So that's how I. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But you look at it, but you look at it again, it's a cliche, but you look at it through the eyes of a kid and they just want to be outside. They want to be outside. Mm. They want to mess around in the dirt and the earth and they don't mind going out in the rain. We project that onto them. Mm. I'm like watching that in real time at the minute. We project this all like, oh, it's raining. My daughter doesn't care. You know, you stick her in a onesie and put a hood up and she'll march down this road and <laughs> doesn't care. We, yeah. yeah, anyway, you kind of get into soapbox territory and it gets a bit ranty, but we are losing our way a bit. Mm. You know, the adventure, the adventure side of things is so important, I think, because it does connect us to that landscape. Mm-hmm. It's how we access nature. It's the vehicle. Mm. But for you and I, so much more than just nature, adventure has led us to access community, culture, purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. And, that, and that's the one thing is is that, especially with what we do, and, and you as, you know, predominantly you, because you, your time on location and doing these things is probably a, quite a lot far greater than I sort of, my, my shoots and experiences are. But it's so important that we, I, th- I saw the, the camera and um, and sometimes, that there's the need to go and search for a story and the need for a story is like a it's like a plane of glass between you and the experience itself you can see the experience and you can see the landscape and you can see everything but there's that thin plane of glass and you're about you can it's almost like a middleman that bounces you you can see everything experiential but beyond it but you're not fully in it so it's I've, I've often thought that some of the trips I'm going to go on are going to be without a camera, going to be without this, and without, which is torture for for me and people like us, where we just like, oh my god, look at this and that, and you, you. But it's so important to go into it, into nature and that kind of thing, with the purpose of being present, um, and using your senses rather than being finely tuned to be like. I've got to be up at this time of day to get that shot or I've got to, on this trip, we've got to paddle this far or do this or do this, you know. Sometimes it's, you just want to be in the outdoors and for the 
to just reset the senses and and everything. Do you do it? I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do. I do a lot of day walks, and I do a lot. I, I go and take a tarp and go and sleep in the woods near from where I live. I do it on my own. Like I'm an I'm a classic introvert, so I'm. I love my own time. I love, you know, I love being in small groups of people, which obviously lends to expeditions and that kind of thing. But I will take a tarp and go and sleep in the woods on a Saturday night. That's how rock and roll I am. <laughs> <laughs> but not every week, but, you know, once or t- twice a month. And I want to be up at sunrise. I want to be able to hear, like, when the birds stop stop um, their calls and then the dawn chorus and then the calls, of, you know, the barks of the month, Jack, and, like, I love that. Absolutely love that, and that's and have a fire and like a little small fire, and if it's safe to do so, of course. But to have that time, that for me is like I love that, absolutely love it. And the smells, you know, especially if there's been rain or, you know, we 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 we. I just feel that there's so much external stimulation nowadays from emails, phones, expectations, our own expectations and desires and pressures that we we, we kind of put ourselves in a bubble that almost stops the experience of nature but you're so right about and i am so guilty of this um we all are with that glass but even i mean the phone definitely Mm. but um the glass as a separation between you and the experience i mean i've always seen cameras as you know particularly with my background and where i'm from and stuff it's like it's been my ticket to access the world has been Mm. carrying a camera but it's not you know you're it's occurred to me before, particularly on trips, that I'm only here because of this and this is why mm-hmm. I'm here and as a result, this is my trip. Mm. But I don't do it. I don't, I, you know, and you're making me think, well, actually, it even alters where you put the tarp or where you put the fire. Yeah, Because actually, does. am I picking the best spot or am I picking the most picturesque? Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I should do it more. I mean, that's the problem is everything, I'm constantly viewing everything as oh, I should go and do this and I should take photos. Oh, when I'm going to do this, I should photograph it because then everyone can see that I've done it, which is good for business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when it's like that, it's kind of like an external yeah. sort of, I should, I could, I, I would have, if, you know, it's, it's from that realm um, rather than just going and being present. You know, like even things, like I heard someone the other day talk about the forest bathing, about going into nature and laying in nature. And, and I can't, I mean... I would be up, I'd love to try that kind of thing, but this is where people are now, you know? So after the social media revolution and phones taking over everything, you know, where there's an action, there's always a reaction. So this, I think the connection to nature and um, the importance of nature and wellness, mental wellness and mental health and that kind of thing is the reaction to the social media revolution where we're getting pulled in on the pretense of being connected, but that under toe or the the thread underneath that is we've been disconnected yeah. from the from who we are as people you know like and even from friends so i think nature is a is the great healer the great sort of um leveler so if we can make time to spend more time in nature in the outdoors and then learn about the, even just our local woodland or our local tree species and the magic of each tree that what you know things that magical things that oak trees do and ash trees or um, birch trees and the properties of birch trees or the plants that inhabit our hedgerows and stuff like that it's about being present and knowing the beauty of what we have here but we 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 tend to go to far-flung regions in search of stuff like that that's why people like you forget what's on your doorstep and you 
in, in like people throughout the world, you know, who go to different, you know, you, you feel that you have to go far away to find something. Mm. Um, I don't think that's always the answer. But again, it's that perception of adventure and exploration, which, you know, I've, I've covered this ground so many times that I won't do it again. But adventure, you know, it's so relative and it's so personal. It's a mindset. Yeah, because you and I would go and have experiences that would be maybe slightly tedious or dull for us because we've got the privilege of experience and we're a bit older now. Mm. But I mean, I, this journey I just did in Wadi Rum, you know, it was incredibly adventurous, but the lad I was traveling with was 20. It was his first big trip like that. And I watched his mind changing, mm. you know, in real time. Whereas for me, it was amazing. I loved it, but I wasn't changing probably. Mm. But that can happen here. I mean, I don't know if you know, I'm sure you know Al Humphreys, but... Alistair Humphreys did this amazing thing where he went, you can go on OS map, ordnancesurvey.com, and you can print off a custom map with your house in the middle. Yeah. And so he did that, and he was like, well, I'm going to visit every grid square. Okay, that's a good idea. And I was kind of like, that it. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously very um, controlled, but equally there's grid squares, you know, in Ipswich or wherever <laughs> that you'd never dream of going yeah. to. For, but that's adventurous. It is, yeah. And for adventure for you... In the future, moving forward with your children, you're, you, that's going to change, you know, because adventure for you might bring an adventure to them. It's yeah. going to be a whole new, whole new ball game. Oh, but even I think people are often particularly, you know, I had dinner at this table last night with my in-laws and they were like, oh, do you not get bored around here? I'm like, no. There's so much woodland around here mm. and I love running with the dog. And so sometimes I'll get to a path, you know, there's a fork in the road, three forks in the road, and I kind of go, I've actually never been that way. Mm. Rather than getting my map out looking at my watch, I kind of just go, ah, let's go that way. Mm. And it's adventurous. Mm. And, oh, there's a felled tree. Oh, I'll have to jump that. Or, oh, actually, I'm a bit lost now. Mm. Can I get, I'm not at danger, not in danger. Can I get back to the car without using my phone? That's adventurous. It's fun. It requires me to use some skills. Yeah. I go, oh, I know which way west is because the sun's setting. You know, or my nose, I can sense where I've turned and where I've gone and, Mm. Is it? It's not difficult to find. No, and we're losing we're losing track of that. I believe that ancestral sort of human sense of our connection to the outdoors, but kind of in terms of our the signs and signs and signals and symbols of the outdoors. You know, and sun where the sun is at certain points of the day, and certain shapes of trees can tell you where the south is, and bluebells and all that kind of stuff. You know, like that's. That's pretty special stuff when it comes to landscape. And there's that um, chap called uh, Tristan Gooley, is it? Yeah. The Natural Navigation. I haven't read it, but I have read it. Yeah. Yeah. And even that, like, that's reconnecting us to our, our sort of primal senses and spatial awareness within the landscape and what things are changing and moving and where, where our place is. And also the, the wildlife, the, you know, the patterns of birds, muntjac, deer, um, all that kind of oh, local wildlife, but it's fascinating stuff. And what that does is, you know, you're building a picture by learning all of those things. You're building a picture of your immediate sort of landscape and learning at when those plants are coming in and when they're going out and when those patterns of those animals are moving and that kind of thing. And it's all just bringing you into the moment rather than being pulled out of the moment by technology social media phones etc etc well most of us need google maps to get to tesco (laughs) (laughs) yeah let alone you know looking oh well moss only grows on the north side of trees or you know yeah i don't actually know much about that sort of thing it is cool it's a cool subject matter i've I've read a fair bit about it and i'm you know you don't really use it a huge amount but it's 
it's it's fun to know. It's good to know. But also, it it, it you, if you learn, I've found if you learn about those kind of things in your local landscape, if you were to go somewhere else, that there's the same knowledge, local knowledge, and desire with the Bedouin or the mm. Yupik people of Alaska who I've met. You know, there's a local, there's a connection to their local landscapes, and they they'll know when the salmon are running in Alaska. You know, I was taught certain plants, even like um, not daffodils. Uh, there's a certain plant that catches the wind in June, and when the when that's flying, the the salmon are running. Just things like that, you know, beautiful. And that's the same thing. It's a connection to the landscape and what's happening at that time. And that that I believe is like the the knowledge and the connection that might be not so much need to be reconnected, but we just re-establish ourselves with it. It's not gone anywhere. That knowledge is there. But I'm so. This might sound like a digression. Um, but I'm so fascinated. I think because we have a lot in common in the way we think, actually, and I think some of our past experiences, like you talk about the connection or lack of in part with your father and mm. this cabinet of oddities and curiosities mm. and then professional help you talked about. Yeah. But then also this search of connection to place and people. I think it might be worth, if you're happy to, kind of building on that a bit and explaining where that all came from particularly around the kind of professional side and why you decided to go down that route and what for? I think it was being an, being an introvert, you're nat- a natural for me to go into nature and like think and deeply think. And, I've, you know, the life coach course, I wouldn't have done that if I wasn't looking for some answers to understand myself. Um, and it was more of just a understand my some patterns and behaviours. I'd suffered like for anxiety quite badly for quite a few years. It was more of I think probably looking back, it was more of a search to how to what's the causes of anxiety and any sort of mental health stuff, how to overcome it. Like you'd, I was treating it almost like like the training for Marines. So it's like okay, what's the problem? How do I overcome it? Like even like expeditions, it's the same kind of thing, which is a bit rigid and structured you know structural but that was my way of just sort of trying to get through things um yeah and it was a working on sort of the relationship between my mother and my father and understanding that where I fit within that dynamic and having sort of certain avoidant parts of my nature where avoidant of conflict and that kind of thing so I was I actually went in search of answers which is I guess the, the actual now I've even said it it's probably like the story of my life going in search of answers and search of meaning, understanding that I can sort of just improve myself in some in, in some way. Not that I should really need improving, you know, you, you're perfect just the way we are with all our fallibilities and ups and downs and everything. That's the beauty of human nature. But, yeah, I, I, I just went in search of what was causing this, anxiety, you know, quite bad anxiety that I had. And... Um, and also, I think a big stepping stage to sort of sort of really moving through that was just kind of accepting that I was an introvert. Like I, because all of my friends, I'm surrounded by, especially in our industry, by people, egos, people that are really good at things. And it, it, it's, it's an intimidating world to be in. And if we want to excel in our world, both of our worlds, we, we work in kind of the same sort of yeah. arena, we're around people that are good at stuff. Um, and, you know, I think at first I was probably, you know, before I'd even got into this this, this line of work, I was, there was probably holes that need, some holes that needed filling and I was look, just going looking for answers and just to sort of 
strengthen myself and work out why I was. And yeah, and that whole introvert thing was that I was around a lot of people, my friends who were extroverted. So I was always competing. And when you're competing, you're competing with yourself ultimately. So that's when there's that disconnection with who you are because you're not being true to who you are. You don't understand. I didn't understand that at that point. So when I came to the conclusion, I thought, yeah, I'm definitely an introvert and became an accepting of that. It was like a, a little weight was lifted because I had some understanding. I was like, yeah, I'm actually, I'm that kind of person and I'm actually pretty cool being that person. Like I'm comfortable being that person now because there's almost like a, like, oh, you're introvert. Oh God, you know, you like, you like being on your own and doing all this kind of stuff and like socially, not awkward, but socially you remove yourself from all this kind of stuff. But I had to work out how to be almost a little bit extroverted. So I had to learn, almost, it sounds so crazy, but I had to learn some skills of like, right, you know, putting yourself out there and like really um, uh, doing a way, you know, accepting who you are and be like, right, okay, this is, I need to go out of myself a little bit here and try a little bit harder with these kind of things. And it, it, it brought me closer to the person that I'm, you know, maturity and age comes with this, I think. You know, you just start to learn a little bit about who you are, what you what you want, what you don't want, what you stand for, what you don't stand for, what you deserve, et cetera, et cetera. And I just did a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of soul searching. And I'm, not that I had any major trauma as a child or any of that kind of stuff, but we've all had some kind of trauma, everybody. You know, we've all some way or another had something that sort of permeates our beliefs and behaviours today. And I think when I started to do that work, I did honestly retreat into nature. I retreated into nature and I was like going for lots of walks, lots of wild camps with just small groups of people. Um, and something, like I said, go like, into the woods with a tarp and have a fire by myself and stuff like that and did a lot of work. And now I'm probably the happiest in this field doing what I'm doing now, the happiest I've probably ever been. I'm telling stories of other people that have, that can educate and entertain the world. And I, I really value that. You feel purposeful? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely feel purposeful. I think there's so much beauty and knowledge and people in the world that have so many incredible stories to tell that I think we, we it, it's, it's a joy to, to, I'm very lucky to what I, for what, I've, what I'm able to do and I feel very blessed and very grateful for what I do. So I just try to bring these stories back that can help educate people and enrich their lives. I mean, you do, right, you do the same, right? I, I imagine with your stories, your films, you know, it's the, you know, we're, we're drinking from the same cup. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you've just talked about as well and some of the things you said, like, because you and I are technically competition, if you think about it. Yeah. Like, there's cross, you know, <laughs> we both do different stuff. You don't run a podcast and I don't do any guiding. Yeah. But we both shoot photos yeah. for a living. But, like, and we talked about this a bit before we started, but it's the whole where does the ego live versus that sense of community. I would so much rather be like connected to people i mean we do we love the same thing you know we like going into wild places and meeting fascinating and interesting people and exploring those cultures communities and landscapes through the process of taking photos of it mm. so we could choose to not like each other because we're technically competition mm. or you can bond with someone over that and mm. i think that's a bit of a it's a unfortunately common human trait is to actually push away the people mm -hmm. who we could be really close with because mm. we feel threatened by them. Mm. Yeah, especially professionally yeah. where money and sort of that kind of thing is involved or, or your career, your progression is involved. 
I mean, I've met photographers when I started out that inspired me beyond measure and gave and almost gave me permission that you were good enough. You are good enough. One person in particular. And then I went back to that person a few years later. I was like, how do I do this and how do I do that? And it was like silence. Yeah. So, but we spoke about just before the podcast started about how to, um, that we should be lifting people up and lifting people and to, so they can follow their passion. If they're passionate about photography, storytelling, filmmaking, that we we have a very good position that we can just say to these people, look, we can help you, or this is the tips and da da da, or connections and stuff. I've got no problem putting any photographer in in contact with people that I've worked with or I am working with. I because why? Because I think that these people are on their own journey and they're, they're trying to create a life that they want and they dream of. And why I can help someone achieve something that they would be so happy with, right? Oh, and, and what, my ego get in the way of that? Because I don't want them to take my role in a, on a shoot or something like that. No, that's, that's, that's bullshit. Yeah, and, and I agree. And obviously we've talked about that, but maybe, maybe it's easier for us now we've reached a certain point in our careers where we've got some confidence mm. despite the constant imposter syndrome. Because actually you do go... Or I go, that would be all right. There is enough. I've got enough of a CV now and enough of a portfolio that, you know, I don't feel like I've made it yet, but I certainly feel like I could go and find some work if I needed to. Yeah. It's the lack of threat, probably. Yeah. And competition is good for you because it keeps you on your toes. Of course it does. It keeps you sharp, keeps you on your toes. It keeps you evolving and moving forward, looking for new ways of shooting, new, you know, new creative directions. I think competition and that kind of thing is healthy in the creative world. Plus, if you've got competition, you're going to innovate and you're going to push boundaries. You're going to look for maybe a story that's slightly different or has got a slightly different edge or something like that. So competition is healthy. You should you should welcome competition, Yeah, I think, personally. So I'm going to digress because I want to have time to do it properly. But... Um, given everything we've talked about and everything we've said and all of the kind of reasons and justifications and ambitions and the journey, how do you end up traveling over to America with a wooden paddle and <laughs> <laughs> going out there for a few months? And, and what did you do and why? So that, that trip, um, was, we were following a, uh, a trail. Well, it's not a trail as we like in the, com in sort of the normal sense of there's a, there's a path through the trees kind of trail or something like that. So the route that we followed was, um, a route where the, the Cherokee were removed during sort of the, the the Western expansion. They were removed from their ancestral homelands in the Great Smoky Mountains, and they were moved to uh, effectively Indian territory. What that's what it was initially called, but now it's um, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. So they were moved along a certain route, and that was called the Trail of Tears. And the reason why that was called that was because the the time of year that they moved that they were forcibly moved with ultimately the clothes they had on their back. Um, it was moved in winter and a lot of people died. Lots of, a lot of Cherokee people died at that point on, on that journey. So they were made to walk a certain distance. So they're split into many different sort of detachments effectively. So there was military detachments that all walked to the Cherokee. They took the Cherokee on flatbed boats up the Tennessee River, over the Ohio and down the Mississippi. They walked them thousands of miles um, and lots of, yeah, lots of Cherokee people died there. So on that route. So... Um, I'd one of my friends who actually came on the expedition with me, we were, well, funny enough, we were in a cafe in the Cotswolds, just having a, you know, classic English fry up. Um, and I said to him, if money was no object, what, what trip would you do next year? It's a classic question. You know, it's just like, it's that kind of spark of 
think if money was an object, I'd just do this. And he said, oh, have you heard of the Trail of Tears? And I was like, I haven't heard that. And he goes, it's a native story and it's this. And he goes, it's all, he, he told me sort of the basic sort of background to the story. And I went home that weekend and then the following week, I was like, would you ever, do you ever fancy doing that? We can put that together and tell the story um, and connect with the Cherokee Nation and see if we can put like a real, real sort of in-depth story together where we follow it. But um, the, obviously the, the difficult parts of that is two white European chaps telling a native story, which is, it's, 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 um, it, yeah, it's a bit of a sticking point and we kind of umdenard about it. Um, but we thought if we can tell it from an authentic view and tell it from the ground, being on the ground, um, and then connecting with the Cherokee Nation and working with them through the process, which is what we did, we can tell it or tell a part of the story through some of the places we go through on the route. Um we can tell it from our eyes and just tell an authentic story and bring that story into the UK, which is, you know, we don't know really anything, a huge um, backgrounds about Native American story or, or when people are moved and put into sort of areas where there's reservations. Um, we don't, we're not exposed to it over here because it's not part of our effect of, you know, our landmass um, history. It's more of an American history, obviously. So, yeah, we, we spent a year and a half planning that and, and done that in 2019. And what did you actually do, I guess? So we crossed the Great Smoky Mountains from one side to the other. Um, and then I the year before, so when we came up with the idea, I went over for three weeks and wrecked the whole route. So I drove the whole route, found people who could sell secondhand canoes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of, as you know, you, you piece together like that kind of blueprint of the whole journey and connected with certain people along the whole route. And literally, I walked into like REI and I was like, I need to speak to someone who sells secondhand canoes. So I spoke to this young lad called Eric, whose father sold secondhand canoes. And then I went to their house, bought and paid for the canoe at this guy's house out in Tennessee. And I said, like, could you be our point of contact next year when we come back? So we sent him all of like the all of the gear, all of the food from Firepot, which we had to send twice because we couldn't get the meat versions into. They were destroyed at customs. Oh. So we had to send vegan versions. <laughs> All the way to the US, like hundreds of meals that cost a fortune. Um, and we sent it all to that guy. So we crossed the Great Smoky Mountains on foot uh, that took seven or eight days. And then we dropped down to the Tennessee River where we met that guy who had literally the canoe, uh, some extra paddles, a couple of weeks worth of food, like barrels of equipment, which we'd sent all over. So it was literally like a lift and shift. And then we paddled the Tennessee River, the Ohio River and the Mississippi. It took about six or seven weeks of just continuous paddling on the river and we're talking like into tornado season so you're going into tornado season and they're, they're calling the spring winds which are these winds that just kick up over for a couple of weeks when sort of transition from winter to spring happen um and then we dumped the canoe we sold the canoe once we got to memphis so this is all actually parts of the route so we were going through all these areas that the Cherokee have been taken and um taken along sorry and then we were researching stuff when we were getting into these cities and towns we were looking at historical areas we were making notes of certain things obviously lots of photography and etc and then we walked on foot from Memphis to Oklahoma which was about 450 miles on foot but the 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 issue with that one was that the trail of tears itself from Memphis to Oklahoma was a dirt track back in the days. Now it's highways and roads. So we walked pretty much on the hard shoulder 
<laughs> for 400 miles, <laughs> which was savage. <laughs> um, and just like you'd, you get into, as you know, like when you get into a zone and you know each day what you got to do, the target you need to hit, da 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 da. It was, it was emotional, but we had planned, once we got to the end, I'd connected with the Cherokee Nation at the start of the trip. Firstly, to get permission that we could actually do this trip. So we thought it'd be best to contact Cherokee Nation and say, look, we, we're two guys who want to do this trip. This is a story you want to tell. Can we have permission to do the trip? And then at the end, we'd love to connect with you for a week and spend time with Cherokee people for a week and get them, you know, take a bit more of a deep dive into the story itself and speak to people connected to the Trail of Tears. So once we got to the end of the trip, we had organised uh, with the Cherokee Nation to have two young Cherokee brothers and a slightly older chap who was connected to the Trail of Tears, ancestrally to the Trail of Tears, and he was a language expert. So he was actually translating Cherokee to Apple. So he was getting an Apple keyboard made up so the Cherokee nation of today and universities could actually speak Cherokee on their Apple phones and laptops and do that kind of thing. So he was really, really interesting to talk to. But the two young Cherokee brothers, Parker and Ryata, we had planned that we wanted to finish the trip walking the last six miles with the Cherokee brothers. And in that six miles, we were just asking questions about what it's like to be a native man in America today, the Cherokee, what's the future of Cherokee, you know, the Cherokee nation and stuff like that. And we had, we spent actually the last week with them and they took us to powwows. We had like drumming sessions with them. So we'd spent time with a couple of Navajo guys and them and we had like drum, we were drumming with them. And it, and they were taking us to these um, projects where they were, uh, growing these things called it's called historically the three sisters which is i think it's corn squash uh corn squash there's another vegetable that they grow i have to recently remember that but and they're regrowing that and that's a traditionally what the cherokee used to eat the three sisters the three foods um so he was creating a uh a kind of a local community project where he was bringing all those foods back so we we went there and learned about all that kind of stuff um yeah, and that was pretty emotional. That was a pretty emotional week because we finished that. Well, it was like seventy odd days worth of being doing that like consistently, and we finished it at the Cherokee Heritage Center, which is kind of this real beautiful museum where they have all of stuff from the Trail of Tears. They have all of these like traditional native uh, Cherokee artifacts. They also have a um, an archive in the back where it has all the Cherokee baskets that have all been found all over the country, and it's all kind of condensed and kept there. So we got access to that and we photographed all the baskets and all these masks and traditional like, sort of ceremonial masks. Um, yeah, and when we finished the trip, they when they were walking with us, they took their shoes off. So they walked the last six miles with their shoes off and in like honour of the people like walking that route with their, you know, bare foot. And it was raining and I remember it was really humid. There was like thunderstorms and they walked and it was like so powerful. And we got to the Cherokee Heritage Centre and there was a small group of people that worked at the Cherokee Heritage Centre, Cherokee people that were waiting for us with a just a silver pot on the floor with watermelon in. And we just, we finished the trip and me and Jamie just hugged each other, um, you know, in that awkward way guys do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we sat there on the floor of like this foyer of like this, this museum and just ate watermelon. Perfect. And then we went and slept in the church. There was like a little kind of on-grounds church there that they had and we slept in the church for a week on the floor on mats and sleeping bags. <laughs> but then we 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 um, met these beautiful people who were classed as national treasures. So in the Cherokee Nation, which is the largest native nation in the US, 
they have national treasures and these are people that are responsible for retaining um, certain aspects of the Cherokee culture and sort of perpetuating those aspects of culture. So the lady that we met, which was Parker and Wright's mum, she was called Tonya and she she was a dressmaker, so she would make traditional Cherokee dresses. So we, we, we spoke to her for hours and hours and hours on end and saw her dresses and saw how she was making the dresses, et cetera, et cetera. So we got a, you know, a pretty deep dive into the Cherokee culture um, for, for that week or two. You know, there's a lot more to it and a lot more sort of historical sort of aspects that we would love to go back and spend more time with them. And then obviously we that featured in Sidetracked and, you know, looking back on that, there was loads of things we could have done differently and photographs that we I wish I could have taken that I didn't, um, you know. But it is, it, it is what it is and we just, we were blessed and honoured to have been given the opportunity to to do that. How did it change you? Um, I mean, you might be agree with this that it it you in the world you the world is a, appears a scary place before expeditions, but you go into them, and the generosity that you receive from local people changes your perception of what generosity, um, and the amount of what can be given in under the spectrum of generosity, like time, friendship is what we encountered along the whole way. Everybody was also always so interested in what we had what we had done. But it changed me in perspective in the perspective of what generosity means and how I can I can improve on me being generous to other people with just friendly, you know, being a friend, being kind and giving my time. And that and that how how that can change the course of someone's journey, life, whatever. You know, and the story of the obviously the Cherokee was hugely impactful and something that just reinforced my sort of desire to go and tell those or to share those kind of stories and bring light to some of those stories. It's, expeditions do change you. They change the way you see the world and how you show up. I mean, you know that as well, what some of the mad stuff you've done. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, yeah, for you, it's, I guess, it's items for your dad's cabinet, whether metaphorical or literal. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's actually a, something that I've, it's the Father's Day this weekend, isn't it? So I've got, I was in Sweden, northern Sweden, up near the Sami people in um, in uh, Feb. So I've got, I've got something to add to that cabinet today. Oh, there you go. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, a are knife. You, are you going up today? To yeah, I'm going from that's... here, yeah, to see them. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah, so it's a, an antler knife and in a beautiful, like, sort of sheath kind of thing that's that I've got from out there. That's incredible. Hey, yeah. cool. Right. I'm going to draw it to a close. Um, we've just hit an hour. Nice. Quick hour. Yeah. <laughs> so I always ask people two questions at the end of every podcast. Just um, answer them however you wish or interpret them however you wish. Mm. What scares you? Oof. Um, what scares me? That's, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. Type. I have to probably think about this answer a bit more. Nothing... Nothing phys- physical scares me in terms of. I need to have to edit this one. Chop this down a bit. Um, <laughs> I like the pondering. What scares me? What's your gut saying? My gut is. I w- I want to live a life of impact, and I want to help people learn and inspire people to achieve greatness in their lives. And it scares. It doesn't scare me, but it scares me that I might not achieve that. I don't know why that that's. 
it might seem a bit self-serving. Cause I don't Does know. Does it? No, I don't. I mean, I, I rarely either interrupt or comment on this question, but I mm. think you and I have a lot of crossover, actually, and I think it might be similar age, but that's about purpose. Everything you've just said is, you know, we're such a... Ah, I'm not going to do the soapbox. It's about purpose, right? Yeah. What you just said is... Yeah. What scares me? I No, I tell you, actually, no. I tell you what scares me. What scares me? Yes, I found it. Is making sure that I've used, especially post-COVID, post-lockdowns, that I'm spending enough time with my family, my mum my and my dad. Sounds a bit sort of soppy, but that that is massive for me. That's why I'm going there today. You know, like after COVID and lockdowns, I'm there every three or four weeks and they live like two and a half hours. So I'm very, very blessed to have both have them both in this world and have them nearby. Um, but it scares me one of, when one of those, when one, my mum and my dad passes, that's, that scares me. Yeah. What brings you hope? Brings me hope. Um, when I see, when I go into the world and go into the world with a certain perception of how a certain place is going to be or certain people are going to be, and you go there and it's not what you think, and people are more generous and more kind and more willing to help than you think, that, that gives me hope because you know, it just goes to show that your preconceptions of the world and your own world that you live in and thinking and believing and stuff like that may not be as bad as you think. And, yeah, it's, that gives me hope. Amazing. I'm going to pick on you. I've got one more question. Go for it. Where do you belong to? Oh, where do I belong to? My God. <laughs> where do I belong to? Um, I, do have a lot, I do have that strong connection to England, the English landscape. The pat the I don't know why, but the patchwork English landscape, I'm so drawn to that from a like a kind of human sense. And like if I think when I think of where do I belong to, I think like try and think deep down where do I belong to. And England, there is a a love for the English landscape. It's where I retreat to, right? So if I if there is a need for that. So yeah, I would say that kind of I would say England. I belong to England. Be ultimately belong to the world and that's cheesy you can cut that bit out <laughs> <laughs> thanks mate that was All right, amazing. Hey, thank you thanks for listening for more information visit the adventure podcast the podcast is hosted by matt pycroft and is produced and edited by orla omori if you want to get in touch, then you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or you can get in touch on Instagram. And finally, please do leave us a review on iTunes. They make the world of difference to us accessing new audiences. 